Good morning. <clears throat> Several weeks ago, I talked with, uh, with you about uh, our pets, the pets in our family. And I, but I couldn't help with, uh, but think about them again as I was reading the story in Genesis early in the week about Adam naming the animals. So uh, we have a lot of fun naming pets in our house. Um, some of us might actually enjoy the naming process more than the pets themselves. You know, there's not the same heaviness and weightiness in naming a pet as there is in naming a child, which gives you a lot more room, flexibility. Um, so Katie named our first dog Gimli, and he's a three-pound Yorkie. I call him my gateway dog because I wanted a bigger dog, but I had to start somewhere, right? My, my parents adopted Gimli after our kids came along. Uh, you, you know the strong grip that a baby can have? Like, really impressive grip? Well, the babies would get a hold of the scruff of Gimli's neck, and he couldn't get away. So he was actually the one to request the adoption. My parents took him in. Now, G Gimli has this red beard that reminded us of a dwarf character named Gimli in The Lord of the Rings, and I realize now, if you were paying attention last week, I've mentioned Lord of the Rings and two Sundays in a row, and it's only going to get worse, so just prepare yourself. Our second dog, this is what I was really wanting to get to, Lego. He is a, a, a um, yellow lab, and his name is short for another Lord of the Rings character, Legolas, who is an elf with golden locks. It's a problem, I know. I see that. But you can't do this with kids, right? Thank you. Just be happy that we're not doing this with our children. And now the kids got their first chance at naming with our kitten that we got several months ago. And it, it took a few days. Her name changed quite a few times in those first few days. But Mittens has stuck. That's her name. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about you guys. I don't know if you enjoy this as much as we do. But I'm always struck at the way that animals and people become so united with their name, the way that name and personality in some cases really does seem to fuse. Of course, people have long thought there was a connection here, especially in the biblical stories, a guy like Jacob and others, Esau means red, and, and, and these names had something to do with their personalities. And I, don't, I can't tell you exactly what all this means, but there is something oftentimes about names and personalities beginning to fuse. And this is why many people don't reuse pets' names. It's funny, I know that uh, Lillian and um, Ken, they just, they name their cats L Lillipus 1, Lillipus 2, which just means cat, I think, in Norwegian. Is that right? But, and that's wonderful. Most people don't do that. Um, because we feel like our, our animals all have their own unique personalities and it would be difficult to just use that name on another one. Now there's a point to all this. In Genesis 2, we heard about the first man, Adam, naming the animals. And we're told that whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. In other words, the name stuck. Nobody argued, said, no, you can't name it that. The name stuck. Whatever he named it, that was its name. And what's happening in this moment is important to the Bible, the story that the Bible tells. The man is behaving like God. Not in a proud or an arrogant way, 
but because this is what God made him to do, to take care of his creation, to order it in the way that he would. So maybe you remember this from the opening chapter of Genesis. God would speak things into being. He would say, let there be light. And there it was. Let there be a sea. And there it was. And it was the same with the animals, the fish of the sea and um, the, the animals for the land. They were spoken into being. God would say it and it stuck. And what we're seeing with the first man is that God has given him some of that same special capacity. He says things and they stick. Whatever he called every living creature, that was its name. Now one more thing I'd like you to take a mental note of. And this is going to sound a little silly, but I want you to just go with me. The man was doing his work. He was naming all the creatures. And he doesn't appear, from what we can tell, to wrestle with pride. Man, I sure did a good job of naming those animals. Especially the, uh, the, the cheetah. Man, I did it right on that one, didn't I? Or, or Neither does he seem to wrestle with low self-esteem or self-doubt. I wonder if I did a good job with the fish. Was that the right name for them? No, there, there's none of this. There's no pride being puffed up about it. There's no self-doubt about it or self-deprecation. He just does it. And based on the way the story is told, he does a fine job. Everybody's happy with it, God especially. Now, I, I want to tell you this morning about what Jesus Christ has done for you and what he wants to do for you. But for me to do that, the first thing that you need to understand and have to wrap your mind around is what you're made to be. You have to believe this in order for you to understand what Jesus Christ has done for you. You have to believe in what you're made to be in order for you to believe what Jesus really has accomplished on your behalf. We're going to spend most of our time in the reading from the book of Hebrews, which actually quotes the psalm that Scott was reading for us. So what are you made to be? Psalm 8 is a hymn on those very early chapters of Genesis. And maybe you notice that the writer of Hebrews quotes this part of it. The, the, the writer of the hymn is looking around one night. I, I did this this morning. I got up while it was still dark and it was pitch black and you could, the stars were incredible this morning. It was so clear. So the, the writer of this hymn is looking around one night and says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man, O oh God, that you're mindful of him? Now, any of us can personalize what the psalmist says. What am I, O oh God, that you're mindful of me? That's probably a question a lot of us, maybe not out loud, but inside our, in our own head, that's probably a question a lot of us have asked. That might be a question that you would ask right now. Who am I, oh God, that you would think about me and give any attention to me? But the writer goes back in his mind to that story in Genesis about how God made man and how he made man to take care of the world for him. And this person knows that God thinks of him. 
No matter how poorly he may think of himself, he knows that God thinks of him. You made man for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. That naming of the animals that Adam does, it's only the beginning of what would be man's work to oversee God's creation. You see, we're never more like what God has made us to be than when we're helping the creation become what God intended it to be. This is why many people experience such joy in working with animals or in working in the creation, because this is what you were made to do. Now, the writer of Hebrews even puts this fine point on it. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, when it says that, it is talking not about God, not about Christ. It is talking about humanity. It's talking about us. God left nothing outside of humanity's control. He entrusted all of it to us. We are God's fully empowered representatives. We are made to carry out God's purposes in the world. Now, our overseeing of the world today is, it's looked down on because of misuse, pollution, all kinds of factors. But it's important to know that in the very beginning, there were no reservations on God's part about us stewarding his creation. We were God's only candidates, and he intended it that way. It wasn't because he had limited supply, too few people applied for the job. God wanted it this way. Now, the part of the psalm, Psalm 8, I'm most interested in is, it says that you crowned us with glory and honor. Now, that's how you think of yourself every day, isn't it? Crowned with glory and honor. Especially when you're washing the dishes, taking out the trash, mowing the yard. I am crowned with glory and honor. No, it's difficult, if not impossible, to think about ourselves this way. And there's a good reason for it. The writer of Hebrews says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is, in subjection to to man, to us. We don't see the crown of glory and honor that God has placed on us. Our so-called dominion is mocked every day by all the details of life that are outside our control. So this past week, we had to call our health insurance about the kids. And Katie is the one with all the information, but it's my name on the account. So they wouldn't talk to her. They had to talk to me. But she's holding all the information. So I'm on the phone with them. She's trying to feed me the information. And they say, if you keep talking to someone else, we won't be able to continue the conversation with you. <laughs> so then Katie's trying to sign me the information or show me on her phone. And so I'm trying to give it back to them. Well, after they begin to believe that I am who I say I am, they tell me that if we want to put Katie's name on the account, we have to call somebody else. 
So at the end of the call, we had to go through this questionnaire for every child, which was about 20 questions, and all of them had the exact same answer for every child. And at the end of the call, I thought to myself, I don't have dominion yet. (laughs) Things are not in subjection to me. And I'm sure that you have lots of places in your life where you experience this. Many of those places being much more serious than that. Much more difficult. But you know, the most serious place where humanity's dominion is mocked by the world is by the presence of sin and death. We fail to exercise dominion over our own selves. Even over things like our own tempers. Much less over the world itself things outside of us. We cannot keep ourselves from death. How can we oversee the world itself that God has made and entrusted to us, to our stewardship? Humans are stuck in this really odd place in the world. We're made to be crowned with glory and honor, but we live in sin and death, experiencing lives of difficulty of struggle. It's a confusing and disorienting place to be in. That's what makes the world so disorienting sometimes and makes our lives very confusing. And here's where we can begin to speak of what Jesus Christ has done for you and what he wants to do for you. We heard already, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is to us to human beings, but we do see him, the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus became the new Adam. Adam gave the animals their names and those names stuck. But Adam also tasted of a fruit that brought death and that stuck too. What Jesus does sticks better though. He tasted death for everyone so that we don't have to taste it in the same way. You know, the fearful thing about death is the thought that ultimately we will be destroyed And that we will get what we deserve for how we've lived. For the mistakes we've made. Some people try to convince themselves that there's nothing at the end. As a way of trying to avoid the fear of that thought. The thought of possible punishment. Because how could we take it if we did receive punishment for all that we've done? If we really did get what we deserve. How could we take that? But Jesus tasted death in such a way that he absorbed everything we deserve. He gives us forgiveness of our sins and he gives us a new name. Son or daughter of the father. Brother or sister of Christ himself. And we're told in this passage in Hebrews that he's not at all ashamed To say that we're his brother or his sister. He's not at all ashamed. You know, some of us will joke about uh, 
you know, don't, don't take it out on me for knowing this friend or for that being my relative, whatever. You know, if anyone could really say that and mean it, it would be Jesus with us. But he doesn't act that way. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers or his sisters. Jesus is the new Adam, and what he does sticks better than what the first Adam did. You know, early on in the church, there was this very important saying about Jesus and what he did for human beings. And it goes like this. What has not been assumed has not been healed. What has not been assumed has not been healed. And the point of this was to say that Jesus assumed or took on everything related to our humanity. He took on our flesh with all its weakness and ultimately it's have death. He took on all the struggle and the death that we have within us and he endured it all. And when he did that, he shot it through with his divine power. All the suffering all the struggle of life, all the temptation, he shot it through with his own divine power, restored it to himself. What has not been assumed cannot be healed, but Jesus assumed all of it, and therefore all of it can be healed. He wants to heal it. What this means is that Jesus fulfilled the vocation that was intended for us. He himself was crowned with glory and honor because we failed to fulfill the vocation and we lost the crown and we lost the glory. But he restored it. And he's committed to helping all of us become new Adams and new Eves. Since he himself has suffered when tempted, we're told, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's the first thing that many of us need to do to believe this about what Jesus wishes to do for us, what he's done for us. We need to stop trying by our own power to fix ourselves and to fix the things around us. You see, Adam wasn't naming the animals in his own power. He was doing it as an extension of God's power. And in order for us to become new Adams and new Eves, we have to learn again how to do things by the extension of God's power. To look to Jesus, the the person of God, as our helper. So God put Adam into a deep sleep so that he could form a helper for him. God put Jesus into an even deeper sleep, into the sleep of death, so that he could send a helper for us. To make us into new Adam's and new eaves. That helper is the Holy Spirit. Now, remember the story from Genesis. Eve is taken from from Adam's side, right? Adam's put into a deep sleep. God forms Eve out of his side. Jesus, on the cross, comes into death. He's pierced by a spear in his side, and out flows blood and water. And these are symbols of the work of the Holy Spirit. That when you are baptized into water, Jesus' blood cleanses you and he fills you with the power of his spirit. You are given a helper suitable for you as a new Adam and a new Eve. He fills you with his presence. 
Listen, Jesus knows that following him is very difficult. He knows that you face a lot of trials in your life, a lot of burdens. He knows that life is difficult. But he has assumed all of this in his incarnation and in his death so that he can restore all that difficulty and then that suffering to himself. He was made perfect through suffering. And Jesus has become the representative of a new kind of humanity, of new Adams and new Eves. And he wants to lead all of us into new life through the sufferings that we experience in following him. And the first thing that many of us need to do to enter into this new life and to take steps further into this new life is stop trying on our own strength and listen to the power of the Holy Spirit that God has poured out within us through Christ. Trust that His power really is sufficient for you. That He's given you everything that you need and He wishes to be your helper in all the struggles and difficulties of your life. So if you're a Christian, God has pour, and you've been baptized, God has poured out His Spirit on you. And the work of your life is to let the Holy Spirit become more and more powerful in the carrying out of your daily work and life before God, before His people. To be quiet and listen to the voice inside of you that is the voice of the Spirit leading you, sanctifying you, making you more into the new Adam or new Eve. Now, if you're not a Christian, you can receive the Holy Spirit. You can receive the new power that you need to become the person that God always created you to be. He's made you to be crowned with glory and honor, but you cannot get that crown by trying to be good enough. You can never be good enough. But you can lay down your arms. And you can trust in Jesus. That he is the true new Adam. And that he'll give you everything you need. To be what you're made to be. So will you lay down your arms? Christian, non-Christian. Will you come to Jesus who promises to be your helper. And to give you everything that you need. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.